to another edition of Perfect Nighting. I'm Neil Perryman, and if you enjoy this podcast and you're feeling generous, you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash perfectnighting. Today's guest is Stephen Schapansky, one third of Radio Free Scarrow, the best Doctor Who podcast bar none, unless you count the other two Doctor Who podcasts he's responsible for, The Memory Cheats and Lazy Doctor Who. Between you and me, I think he really likes Doctor Who. Anyway, I'm fairly confident that he won't mention that particular show today, so let's go ahead and meet him. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to Perfect Night In. Thanks, Neil. I'm glad to be spending my perfect night in with you. Could you tell us where this perfect night takes place? Well, I'm in uh, northern Canada. Well, I should say I'm not really in northern Canada because if you look at a map of Canada, we're actually fairly far south, but certainly much farther north than most of the people I know. Uh, So it's snowing outside, obviously. It's a nice... December night in, I think perhaps I've I've just been out on the uh, out in the pond or outdoor hockey rink skating around a little bit today, and uh, I've I've probably had some hot chocolate after having come inside to help warm up, and now uh, now I'm ready for a, a night in uh, to watch some television. Well, it's six o'clock, and given what you've just told me, your first choice makes perfect sense. Yes, I chose Hockey Night in Canada, which is as sacred a Saturday night tradition in this country as perhaps Doctor Who might be in in, in England. I thought you were going to say Match of the Day. <laughs> oh, sure, Match of the Day. I suppose that's a thing. I guess you have sports in England as well that aren't hockey. Sure, that's great. Hockey, I can I get it. Like it started in like the nineteen oh thirties, I think, on the radio, and then moved to TV in I think nineteen fifty two or fifty three or something. Interestingly enough, the the first uh, editions of Hockey Night in Canada were produced by one Sidney Newman, who worked at the CBC before moving on to the BBC to create Doctor Who. Hockey Night in Canada still is today, by the way. It's still a giant in this country. It's it's like Saturday night is just hockey night. And I have watched uh, Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday nights for as long as I can remember I remember the, the games, obviously, but I suppose actually me being me, I, I became a fan of, of commentators and production and everything by watching Hockey Night in Canada. And there, you know, there were various segments, like Howie Meeker was a, an early proponent of video replay in the intermissions and analyzing stuff and, and, and using the telestrator to sort of like break down how plays were sort of happening in, in his own in his own unique style. What about the Flames? What are they doing wrong? Oh, they got a four check. They're giving up the puck too easy. They're dumping it in the Edmonton zone, and then la di da da and Edmonton are just bringing it out, <laughs> gone to the attack. They have to go in there and take the man. Yeah. I thought Calgary would hit somebody to start this hockey club. It's the other way around. Edmonton we did the four check. thought it was going to be a little more physical. We talked about that earlier. Okay, what have you got? Well, hell, you and I could play out there. It's not that physical. <laughs> no problem at all. There was Coach's Corner which uh, still continues to this day with Don Cherry, who used to be an NHL coach in the 1970s and moved right into TV broadcasting soon after his career ended in 1979 and has been there literally ever since. Uh, He's a bit of an old dinosaur. I don't take too many of his opinions to heart. It's it's uh, it's tough watching installments of Coach's Corner from years and years ago because his his politics 
have only changed as a result of backlash against him as opposed to um, him sort of being progressive in the first place. But he's an icon in this country. I got to say one more other thing. Cindy Melrose, did she give it to me after the game in L.A.? Yes. Like you couldn't believe. And I admired her so much. I tell you, she was like, Tammy Minette, stand by your man. She just ripped into me. She had a sign that said sour grapes. Yeah, wine or something like that. But I overcome her with charm, good looks, and personality. And she gave me a kiss at the end. But I like that. She stuck up for her man. Yes, and her man's done a good deed in terms yes. of a story Thanks. in Breton, Nova Scotia. He, that's what you call bringing me into it. I'm a little upset here, and he brought me into it. For for me, it's been it's been the play-by-play broadcasters. I, I used to want to be a play-by-play broadcaster. And Bob Cole, who is retiring, actually, this year, after his 50th year with Hockey Night in Canada, has always been my favorite. I remember reading a magazine, and he said what he was asked what his favorite game was that he ever called and it was the overtime of uh, game five of the 1984 Patrick Division semifinals between the New York Islanders and the New York Rangers and the overtime was electric it was seven minutes long but it was chances on either end before Ken Morrow finally scores uh, on Glenn Hanlon and just the the electricity in the building was coming through his voice and and his just enthusiasm for this game that he was watching and calling. I, it was one of my earlier hockey memories watching that because I hated the New York Islanders because they were the rival to my team, the Edmonton Oilers, and I really wanted them to lose. And they were almost upset in that game before before the Islanders won. So I, that the memory of that game sticks out to me. And uh, I, be, I became a fan of Bob Cole ever since. As he played it in, that's Tonelli going after it. To the corner, Patey, Boston, Sutter, picked out by Glenn Hanlon, shot, score! The Islanders have done it, the Islanders, four, they have won it in overtime, three, two, it's over, and the march for the Islanders continues in 84. I, I work in the field of hockey TV production, essentially, right now, and it's because of my, my love of Hockey Night in Canada back in the day. What is it that you do? I do video replay for Edmonton Oilers games uh, at the arena in Rogers Place. So it, it literally is my dream job. I get to watch hockey and then show it to people. Look at how cool this was. Everyone look, and that's my job. Living the dream. I am 100% living the dream, Neil. Okay, well, that takes us up to 8.30, and your next choice is something I've actually seen. I chose the tripods. Neil, what what are your memories of the tripods? I remember being really excited by the trailers for it, and this was going to be like the next big thing to like rival Doctor Who, and it was really really boring. <laughs> There's not enough tripods. That's that's a that's an understandable reaction, and I sympathise with. For some reason, when I I think I watched it when I was 14 or 15, I can't remember. It was the spring and summer of some year, 89 or 1990. And it just hit me. Actually, the very first time I saw tripods was when I was flipping around 
and caught like the last little three seconds of an episode that looked to be set in some weird space station and there was a guy with like a space helmet on and then the closing credits kicked in and it was the theme music and the animation through it that I thought, what is this show? And I had to track it down because this is in the days before the internet. I missed the next week. I managed to sort of tape uh, the last, like, the first four minutes or something of the week after that. And then I finally managed to, to tape the episode after that. That episode then cut off on my tape with about a minute and a half left. It took me a good long while to realize that the, the first episode that I properly taped with the ending cut off was the last episode ever. What a way to get into it. <laughs> so as Will and Beanpole walk over the hill and then I see them like looking up, oh, what's going on? Literally, the tape cuts off. It ends on a cliffhanger. And I, and then it, it took me a few minutes into the first, what I thought was the next episode, which is actually the first episode. Huh, his hair is slightly longer and they're an entirely different. Oh, this is the first episode. I understand. I don't believe it. Has it all been for nothing? The great thing was that YTV, which aired it here, they bought a whole bunch of British television in the early 90s, including, uh, they were my first uh, viewings of, of Hartnell and Trout and Doctor Who. Uh, and they bought Star Cops, Red Dwarf, and a whole bunch of other things. And they actually took the time to put like a synopsis on the end, after the end credits, explaining what happened in the third book. I thought that was quite um, quite good of them, actually. So that that's kind of when I discovered that it wasn't going to be a, an ongoing thing. But by then I was hooked. So they actually filled in the, the entire plot of the third book in a, what, a caption? They did, yeah. Essentially like a scrolling caption with some narration over top. Yeah, essentially Star Wars style. Yeah. Wow. So that that was noble. But I, I was hooked. And, and honestly, by the, by the time they got to season two, you know, I was just into that world and, and the serialized storytelling, which I hadn't really been introduced to until this, and how... Everything was very primitive, and you know, I, I shared the joy in the last episode of season one when they see like electric lights. They go, "Oh wow, what's what's making the lights go? Electricity is they're getting close to civilization." And so, when uh, in episode five of season two, after uh, Will and Fritz uh, win inclusion into the city of gold, which we've only seen in the distance, very mysteriously through the first couple episodes of of season two. Then we finally are just transplanted there in oh the the opening sequence, which I think is three minutes long, and it's all basically model footage of the tripod walking into the city of gold, and it's punctuated by one of my favorite pieces of music in television ever by Ken Freeman, who did the soundtrack for the whole show. It's it remains one of my most memorable television moments. I watched that scene so many times with my jaw wide open at what I was seeing because I knew it was it was made in about 1985 and I was thinking why doesn't Doctor Who look like this? It looks amazing. I was blown away. Is it possible that men could have built all this? This is fantastic. That huge building over there, can be the other. 
was getting suspicious of your questions. How else are we going to get answers? Do you know, I remember watching that episode go out live, and I don't think I've ever seen it since, but it still sticks in my head. As a good thing? I just remember being disappointed that the rest of the series wasn't the same. It's a bit like Trial of the Time Lord, isn't it? You get that great sequence, and that's it. <laughs> well, then they actually go into the city, too, and I thought that was amazing with the little uh, the flying uh, sort of spinning pyramid cars that were going around, and actually the design of the masters themselves which I didn't realize at the time, but I watched it earlier today, and I noticed that, yeah, they're pretty much caked in bubble wrap, actually, but the way it's lit, it's lit very dark and green. You can't quite tell, but there are moments when uh, a dead master, spoilers, is uh, sort of um, lifted up and dropped. You can kind of hear the bubbles pop a little bit, but that's television production, isn't it? I am West Avenue 4, Sector 6, Level 8. West 468 for short. This is me, my identity. In your terms, my name. West 468. And you, boy? Will, Master. Will what? Willie Sachs. But... But Will for short. <laughs> Very apt. For after a hundred years, I'm delighted to have found at last a slave with a mind of his own. The tripod takes up to nine o'clock and you're going to be shocked to hear that I've never actually seen your next choice. I am stunned, Neil, that you have never seen the brilliant but short series called Star Cops, um, which aired, I think, went in the summer of 1987 on BBC Two for you, but it aired sometime around the same time, 89, I think, for me, PBS, my local PBS station picked it up. And uh, it was a a BBC sci-fi show, so yep, I was in on it, and I, I loved it. It's a show that, though made in 1987, is set in the futuristic space year of 2027. But but what I like about it is that it's a very believable future. There, there are space stations, but there's mostly like no gravity. There's a moon base. There's possibly a Mars exploration base. But everything is, you know, it takes a while to get up to space and back down again. There are effects of that. It's it's That's the universe that it's all in. And then you get uh, interesting characters like, Nathan Spring is played by one of my favorite actors, David Calder, and Colin Devis, who's played by Trevor Cooper, who's excellent. And what my favorite thing is, and, and this kind of opened my eyes to to Chris Boucher, the writer who wrote most of the episodes, and sort of that very witty repartee between the various characters that you see, like in Blake Seven and in um, his Doctor Who episodes, is very prevalent. So it hit me. And I think it only aired once, but I managed, I, 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 I'm glad that I foresaw how much I would enjoy the show and actually taped all the episodes on first run. You are now leaving a weightless area. You are now leaving a weightless area. You are now leaving a weightless area. You are now approaching artificial gravity. You are now approaching artificial gravity. The look of the show is 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 interesting because there are two directors that uh, directed on it. One uh, called Christopher Baker, who did like the first three episodes, and one other one. And then the other ones are directed by Graham Harper, Doctor Who stalwart Graham Harper. 
and you can instantly tell the difference of styles. Christopher Baker seems to like just to lock off a shot and have the action happen in front of him, a la Peter Moffat perhaps, but Graham Harper's a much more imaginative and inventive director and so his episodes i think are much more visually interesting and, and you've chosen one of his episodes to to watch for your perfect night in which one have you chosen i've chosen trivial games and paranoid pursuits uh, warren my my co-host and radio free scarrow sums up star cops rather brilliantly in that in that the, the plots are either like very simplistic or needlessly complex i feel this one fits into the latter a little bit i've never quite followed all the goings on of it I but I enjoy the production aspects of it and how the space station look. It's it's the first of the the Graham Harper episodes, I think, and I'm also amused by the overt uh, stereotypical portrayal of Americans. Um, the the commander uh, is wearing like a Dallas Cowboys shirt and smokes cigars and plays pool, and it, it's so very stereotypical and hilarious. But having seen American TV fill its screens with nothing but international stereotypes for decades. I I figured Britain owed them one. Supposing I wanted to hire a room. Oh, you can share mine. And supposing I was a microbiologist and I wanted to hire a room. Where would I go? Somewhere else. You've got something against microbiologists? Well, there's a directive. No research involving protozoans, bacteria, none of that stuff. You see, we leave those dirty games to the Russians. Uh, what about medical research? Well, how do you tell the difference, huh? The blanket ban, then, the good and the bad. That's right. Where that stuff's concerned, when you got no place else to go, you keep it the hell away, huh? It's just too goddamn dangerous. Now, pretty lady, what do you say I show you the pool table and its more orthodox uses? Okay, Stephen, Star Cops takes up to 10 o'clock, but before we start your next choice, this is the time of night I usually ask my guests what kind of snack I can get them. So is there any crisps or sweets or nuts I can get you? I'll tell you what, I, I recall back in the day when I was watching TV and I, I didn't, I was, our TV was downstairs, the kitchen was upstairs, I would run up very quickly and pour myself a bowl of shreddies. Um, and then quickly run down and, and have a bowl of shreddies. So, and I, I, I remember tasting shreddies when I was in the UK, and they're very similar to the shreddies in our country. So, so if, if you could fix me a bowl of shreddies, um, that'd be great. And for your 10 p.m. choice, you've chosen one of the greatest TV shows ever made. The Sandbaggers. This is a recent viewing for me. I was talking with a friend back this summer, and he said he's from Boston. He's uh, just an American fellow who it, I don't think has a big compunction for British TV like I do, but said that The Sandbaggers is, is one of his favorite shows ever. It just somehow it came up. And oddly enough, I remember it airing on the CBC here in Canada in the early 80s. Never watched it, but I remember the theme song coming on. I knew I knew it enough that when Roy Marsden was on a Doctor Who episode a few years ago that I recognized him. Ah, that's Roy Marsden from The Sandbaggers. But I never actually watched the show. And I reached out on Twitter 
to BritBox, which is the North American streaming service that the BBC and ITV have put together and have, they have a lot of uh, older and newer British TV shows on. And I say, could you get the sandbaggers? And I thought nothing of it. You know, you tweet corporate accounts all the time and you expect no feedback at all. But then I, the next week I was looking on, on the service and, oh my God, they have the sandbaggers. And I watched him. Our battles unfought at the end of a parachute. The one are lost in drab, dreary corridors in Westminster, and hopefully in Oslo. Yes. Well, thank you for being so restrained. Oh, you, you have a few minutes. Maybe we could take a drink together. I've got nothing to celebrate. Well, nonetheless, I would like to buy you a drink. Edovic, if I had a glass in my hand at this moment, I'd shove it down your throat. I, I didn't know anything about it. I knew that I saw the theme tune and it was in, you know, on film as most uh, opening credits would be. And the opening couple sequences were on film. And I thought, okay, it's a film series. That's fine. But once they switched to studio, I realized, oh, excellent. Multicam production. I love it even more. And I was, I was immediately taken by it. I was expecting something slower paced because it's, you know, made in 1978. But what I love about The Sandbaggers is, as you well know, it's, it's, it's a show about spies and count, you know, double agents and everything. But we, perhaps because of the budget is restricted, we don't see the, the outlandish exploits of the actual sandbaggers on location, apart from when they go out to a countryside in Yorkshire or something to pretend it's, it's the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, all most of its drama comes from phone calls and meetings in other rooms. And what I love about it is that it's very rarely, you know, they they don't have to show Neil go from one place to another. It's like, oh, I better go see, um, you know, I better go see C about this. And then boom, it cuts right to the next scene. Door closes. He's in the office. Like it's it happens with such rapidity that show. It's it's remarkably paced, and it's all down to dialogue and performances. What I also love about it is how, like, the, the writer, uh, what, Ian McIntosh, was it, um, was like a secret agent himself. And you could tell that he knew the world in and out, what he was writing, because there's little bits here where he would, like, when Neil comes home at the end of the night, picks up the phone, just phones, like, the, the war room essentially says, yeah, I'm at home now, boom. Like, little mundane things like that, are, you know, that just that's just how that, that world works. And it was enthralling. O'Neill, two final points. One, you seem to have forgotten that I've been playing this game a lot longer than you. Best if you don't forget it again. And two, try this again and you will be wandering up and down Whitehall looking for a vacant situation. And the episode you've chosen is the, um, I believe it's the final episode of season two. It is. It's called Operation Kingmaker. I, you know, the the other uh, episodes are great with, with them sort of like, you know, trying to get various people out of countries and, and from behind the Iron Curtain and there's all this sort of action sequences and stuff. But this one uh, really stuck out to me because it's an episode that is, is, there's no danger at all to any of the sandbaggers. It's all just sort of maneuvering. Office politics. <laughs> office politics as an episode. It involves Neil having to... Basically, he hears that, well, his, his preferred C is, is stepping down, Richard Vernon, who, of course, goes on to play Slarty Bartfast in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which, believe me, is an amusing watch after having seen the Sandbaggers now. And he wants to recommend a certain 
person, his his uh, immediate superior Peel as the as the new one, because the the alternative, this Tower Gibbs fellow, is is far far worse, and so he met, he tries to steer the powers that be into a position to accept him. Uh, but then it, it turns out that um, that they are in fact maneuvering to to move their own person in place. It's it's a it was a brilliantly written episode, and uh, I love it because he doesn't even like the guy he's trying to get into position, does he? <laughs> oh, he thing. doesn't. It's just the lesser it, of two evils. It is one hundred percent the lesser of two evils, and and I love how I mean it's it's nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine when it was made, and it's a shocking look back at what office decorum was specifically like sexism and uh, workplace politics and stuff uh diane the uh the outgoing uh secretary is treated just horribly uh by neil uh, what i like about about the lead character neil and that is that he never he never changes he's always got that sort of wall in front of him and just when you think it sort of starts to crack a little bit uh he just goes back to being you know a, a kaji kaji loner who is in love with this job you've been with me for what uh, 20 months yes and now you give me one month to replace you rather less i'm afraid i'm using up leave in lieu of notice then you find a replacement before you go i'll try and someone as good as you And someone of the same age. I'm not taking anyone young. Thank you again. You know what I mean. I am sorry, Neil. Truly. Then stay. I can't. Christopher will need looking after. So will I. He's definitely the coolest Neil on TV. That's for sure. <laughs> well, you haven't appeared on TV as much yet, Neil. So. And of course, what's interesting about the sandbag is it's very similar to the tripods in many respects. <laughs> A hundred percent, and that there's about as many tripods in each no, episode. It, it, oh. it ends on a cliffhanger that's never resolved. That's true. It does because they had the the the, the ex secret agent who wrote it mysteriously disappeared, and they had to what cobble like two or three skips together to finish out the season, and then it ended on a cliffhanger. And, and... I believe the cliffhanger, the final shot of the series, is a plane in the air, and the writer died in a plane accident, didn't he? Mysteriously, or disappeared he... in a plane. He did. That's right. Ooh. I know. Most mysterious. So, yeah. Absolutely brilliant sandbaggers. And if you've never seen it, it's available on DVD. And our BritBox in North America. And um, that takes up to 11 o'clock and your next choice couldn't be more different. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, I, th- I feel like my, my choices are very much in line with where I actually watch these shows. They often, oftentimes, in, when I was watching Doctor Who, for instance, that show, which I know, um, on PBS on Saturday nights, it would air an omnibus version from like 10 to 11.30 or 11, 11 to 12.30 at some point. And then after that, there'd be a British comedy or two. And so this is where I discovered these these sorts of shows immediately after Doctor Who. Um, and this is an obvious one, isn't it? It's Faulty Towers. <laughs> Manuel? The bottle. Uh, yes. Where is it? Okay. Donde es... Uh... Oh, I take it. <sighs> I take it, I take it. Come here. Yeah. You're a waste of space. Oh! <laughs> and which episode have you chosen? I had a long, hard think about this. I, I suppose I've chosen the hotel inspectors, but I could choose any number of them. What I love about Faulty Towers... I'm sure many people have lauded it in many different uh, comedy documentaries over the years, but it is your basic 
sitcom premise done to perfection. This show could be made a hundred times by a hundred different cast and crew, but it would not be written and performed as immaculately as this series is. I, I just find, I mean, it's, people love Monty Python. I, John Cleese is, 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 paramount because of faulty towers for me i think it's the the funniest 12 episodes of, of television i think i've ever seen now i have a rendezvous at five o'clock at this address which i must reach from the post office in queen square now as the map is sadly inadequate i would be very grateful if you could draw me a diagram of the optimum route well i mean um, may i ask what's wrong with the map well it's got curry on it <laughs> well, look, it's perfectly simple. You go to the end of uh, Queen's Parade you, and... Uh, uh, no, just listen. No, I just want a diagram, No, it's please. really very simple. Well, I'd rather have a diagram if it won't put you out. Well, it does put me out. Well, I'd <laughs> like it all the same. Basil? The Hotel Inspectors is... is I, I picked out because I had to pick one just because I, I just love how... Basil is sort of like... Uh, there's a hotel inspector in town and he's trying to dis- decipher which of his guests it is. And at first he thinks it's Bernard Cribbins, but it isn't. Uh, and then he thinks it's this other guy who who wants his wine a particular way. And uh, the the line that that makes me laugh the most to this day is when Basil sort of loses it in front of this guy, and because he thinks he's the hotel inspector, but he's not. And he goes, "No, I sell I, I sell motors, outboard motors." And he and he hands him a pamphlet, and just the way that John Cleese goes. It just, I crack up every time he says it. And I'm cracking up now when I think about it. Don't put this in the book. We're finished if you don't. Please don't. Book? What book? The hotel guy. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have mentioned it. But what have I done? <laughs> You've got me confused with someone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm nothing to do with any hotel guide. I'm down here for the exhibition. I sell outboard motors. All right. I think there was a marathon one day on on PBS that I taped, so I've I had that on my my VHS collection for years and years and years. These are the British shows that made their way to uh, to our shores, and a whole bunch of other ones were were left left on the on your shore, I think, and never made it over. Like like a lot of programs that have uh, featured already in in earlier episodes of this podcast, which I'm enjoying hearing about. So we're we're basically getting your greatest hits, essentially. Well, it's eleven thirty, and your next choice is another sitcom. Black Adder. Um, I am a fan of all three of the. the I was never a, a big fan of, of the first one, and neither was anyone else, and that's when I changed it uh, into a much better format, that being more studio bound and making uh, the key decision in making um, Edmund Black Adder, as played by Rowan Atkinson, as the as the smart one and everyone else around them kind of dumb, as opposed to the first one. Uh, a lot of people like like season four, which is the one set in World War One. I. I like it as well. I also like two, but I honestly the third one I think is still my favorite. And and we you asked me to submit an episode, and 
Initially, I think I chose Corporal Punishment from season four, but then I wavered and I think, no, actually, I really like season three and I need to talk about it more. And so I, I chose Ink and Incapability. That's the one where uh, where Dr. Johnson, uh, is played by Robbie Coltrane, uh, has, has written a dictionary and he seeks uh, the Prince Regent's patronage, Prince Regent pre- played uh, by Hugh Laurie, who finally gets a starring role in this show. And then basically hijinks ensue. Books are burned. Uh, the wrong book is burned. And then it's not. And then it is. And uh, all sorts of amusing dialogue happens as well. But um, it made me laugh yet again. I watched it just yesterday. And I thought I, I could almost recite this, this episode in my sleep. I've watched it so many times. But I still crack up every time I watch it. I need to improve my mind, Blackadder. I want people to say, that George, why, he's as clever as a stick in a bucket of pig's will. And how do you suggest this miracle is to be achieved, Your Highness? Easy. I shall become best friends with the cleverest man in England. That renowned brain box, Dr. Samuel Johnson, has asked me to be patron of his new book, and I intend to accept. Would this be the long-awaited dictionary, sir? Who cares about the title, as long as there's plenty of juicy murders in it. I hear it's a masterpiece. No, sir, it is not. It's the most pointless book since How to Learn French was translated into French. <laughs> it's when uh, when Coltrane comes in and sort of like, you know, uh, hello, sir, and uh, he sort of like goes on and like uses this very florid language to say how, how great his day has been. And, and Hugh Laurie is just like, nope, didn't get a word of that. And then he just he tries to go on with even further. Like, he, you know, he, he assumes that the Prince Regent uh, knows his much English as he does and he doesn't. And then Blackadder comes in and he's seeking to one-up the uh, uh, Robbie Coltrane and uh, with these wonderful... I think I think they're all made-up words. I can't remember the actual words that he's saying, but it's uh, the, the way that Atkinson delivers them. Um, contrafibularities is a word that I think I still use. Uh, in- interfrastically is another one that I often say, oh, I'll, just, I'll get on that, interfrastically. I don't know if that's a word yet, but I learned it from Blackadder. Here it is, sir, the very cornerstone of English scholarship. This book, sir, contains every word in our beloved language. Every single one, sir? Every single word, sir. Well, in that case, sir, I hope you will not object if I also offer the doctor my most enthusiastic contrafibularities. (laughs) (laughs) Contrafibularities, sir? It is a common word down our way. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm anaspeptic, phrasmotic, <laughs> even compunctuous to have caused you such pericombobulation. <laughs> what, what, what? what are you all about, Blackadder? This is all beginning to sound a bit like Dago talk to me. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. I merely wished to congratulate the doctor on not having left out a single word. Shall I fetch the tea, Your Highness? Yes, yes. And, and get that damn fire up here, will you? Certainly, sir. I shall return interfrastically. <laughs> so all of these programs hark back to a time when you were about 15 then, so that was obviously your golden era. A lot of people have their like golden age of, of watching TV a, a few years younger than that. I, I think that's when I sort of became huge fans of, of everything that I'm a fan of. Doctor Who, Blackadder, Faulty Towers, Star Cops, Tripod. So so I, was, I sort of got the dialogue a little more, and, and it was on at a time that, uh, that was accessible for me as well. Is that sad? Is that I, I don't think I'm being too nostalgic here, am I, when it comes to these things? I, I don't know. Was I, was I hitting puberty at that time? Was I just finally interested in 
sort of becoming my own person a little more perhaps and just sort of finding these TV shows that instead of sort of like just plopping down and watching, you know, whatever was on TV, Growing Pains or Who's the Boss or something with the rest of the family, I was actually seeking out my own visual entertainment at the time. Would you watch these on your own then or would you not watch them with the rest of the family? No, it was just be um, all these things, Neil. Almost all these things, apart from Hockey Night in Canada, were solitary passions of mine, sort of watching after after hours on my own, on my own TV, perhaps, in the basement. Yeah, t- t- TV for some people has been a very communal experience. For me, it's, 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 it's not been. We're coming up to your final choice, but before we um, get there, can I get you something to drink? Uh, well, um, I'm a bit of a lightweight, Neil, so uh, don't make it too strong, but maybe I will have... Oh, let's go for a white Russian. I haven't had one of those in a while. Well, I'll get you one of them while you introduce us to your final choice. Certainly. This is... Uh, hey, it's a, it's a newer uh, show, so I don't feel so bad about being nostalgic. Uh, this is the thick of it. What do you think, Malcolm? Shitting on the department, will that work? Yes, let's cause a little bit of friction. Let's fire someone. What about Glenn? No, you can't just fire Glenn well, like we that. Could, we can't. could fire Glenn. Shall I get his file? No, I've got a list. It's... See, there you are. He's got a list. You're a new broom. You're sweeping up trouble with one end, broom handling incompetent staff up the tunnel with the other. I never knew about it until Peter Capaldi was cast as Doctor Who, but I, I saw various clips, as everyone else probably did on YouTube, of, of him as, as Malcolm Tucker. And I decided to watch the show. And I didn't quite pick up on what was going on for the first couple times through. But now I'm, you know, when you watch it, especially as a Canadian, we have a similar government system as as you do, similar parliamentary government. So a lot of the things start to make sense a little more as you watch it three or four times because it's a very fast-paced show. And and so I, I really enjoyed the, the first couple seasons of three episodes each because <laughs> British TV shows, three three episodes makes a season over there. Uh, but that that you can kind of tell by season three, which is like two thousand nine, I think, that the the producers realize that Malcolm Tucker is is the big thing here, and he he plays a much more prominent role, I think, in seasons three and four. And so the one that I chose was the second episode of season three, where uh, um, Nicola Murray, the new parliamentary secretary or so whatever her her role is, minister, the head of DOSAC, essentially has. Uh, her her government has uh has lost immigration data and then she unwittingly uh leaks that to the the press and the episode contains when Malcolm Tucker finds out about this one of my all-time favorite television performances of of Peter Capaldi there sitting in the van uh and he just just loses it honor what I, it, it's such a natural performance he does this business with the seatbelt where he's trying to take off the seatbelt. And I can't tell if that's scripted or not. He just fights with it. And then he just, he rants. And then he sort of like, he sort of like sits back and thinks about it. And then he turns around and starts ranting again. And it's such a natural performance that he should win a BAFTA for it. It's, it's remarkable. You would think that it, it, somehow that is scripted. I don't believe that it's scripted. It's just 100% perfect. Um, yeah. So it, it, it cracks me up so many times. I love it. Are you so dense? I'm not going to have to run around slapping badges on people with a big tick on some and a big cross on others so you know when to shut your gob and when to open it. Jesus Christ. Oh, but that'll probably confuse you as well, won't it? That'll be too confusing. You'll see the cross and go, oh, f- 
X marks the spot. Better tell this little person all about the Prime Minister's catastrophic erectile dysfunction. I really love uh, the chap who plays Glenn. Um, Glenn Cullen is one of my favorite. One of my favorite lines. It's not in this episode, but some some flunky comes to the office or something. And he goes, "Oh, hello. No need for me to get up." I. I I desperately want to say that to someone in a situation where I'm meeting them for the first time, but hopefully they would get the joke and know that I'm personally offending them. Yeah, it's it's oh, remarkably cast, remarkably written, remarkably profane, which is part of the appeal of it. Yeah, it's it's become a, a big favorite of mine. Who primarily should I be shouting at? Well, Glenn, Glenn. Glenn. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Um, I have here the minutes, which are a record. No, and no, no, no. you can't just overwrite minutes. You specifically can't do it because you can't unlock a PDF file. Somebody has done a huge poo on my desk and I want it cleared up. My bum is clean. It's clean as a whistle. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something interesting. Unless you take the hard drive, smash it up with a hammer, or you drop it in acid, that data's still going to be retrievable. And that it says so on the BBC website. It's a shame it can't come back because British politics now is too insane for it to compete with. That's it. And and the, the remake Veep, the last episode of Veep has been delayed and delayed because every, you know, every, literally every day of the current U.S. administration competes with it for lud- ludicrosity. It's, uh, yeah, it can't, it can't do it. And so here's a rundown of Stephen Schapansky's Perfect Night In, starting at six o'clock sharp with a feature length hockey night in Canada. Bottles of bud all round, I expect. At 8.30pm, Will and Fritz finally reach the City of Gold in the Tripods. And the fantasy continues at 9, when the Star Cops go on the trail of a scientist. Roy Marsden leads the cast of The Sandbaggers into another investigation at 10 o'clock, and then the hotel inspectors show up at Forty Towers at 11. Could Bernard Cribbins be one of them? There's more comedy at 11.30 in Blackadder when our hero comes face to face with Dr. Johnson and coins a brand new definition for the word aardvark. The evening closes at midnight in the thick of it when Nicola Murray loses some crucial immigration data and Malcolm Tucker loses his rag. Okay, one last question, Stephen, is who would you like to share your perfect night in with? Well, I feel that most of the shows I would watch with, with my lovely wife, Erica, and some of the shows she hasn't seen. She hasn't seen The Sandbaggers yet, and she wants to. My wife hasn't seen The Sandbaggers either. Maybe we should all get together and watch it together. I think so. I, maybe uh, me and Erica can do like a lazy Sandbaggers podcast, perhaps, and then perhaps the wife in space can continue on with The Sandbaggers as well. And on that bombshell, Stephen, thanks very much. Thank you, Neil. Ba, 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 da, ba, 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 